Well, the title for our sermon today is How We Worship God Alone, How We Make Him the Rightful Place That Our Heart Needs, That He's the One and No Other That We Give Ourselves To. And so we pick up with the Israelites just after God has saved them from their life of slavery through 10 miraculous plagues, 10 miraculous miracles. And if you want to join me in your Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 19. The Israelites at this point are now wandering through the desert and they waver between this feeling of gratitude of what God has done and grumbling as he has seemed to be slow in his provision for them. But here's the reality. God continues to give them all that they need. But the Israelites, because of distraction and disobedience, what would have normally taken six months to travel from Egypt to the promised land would take over 40 years for them to complete. At this point, God has parted the Red Sea. He's quenched their thirst by causing water to flow from a rock. He's filled their very bellies with manna and quail from the sky. And now the Israelites find themselves at the base of a mountain in the desert, Mount Sinai. And it's here that we pick up in chapter 19, verse 3, and we see God's invitation for them to know him deeper. Verse 3 says, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. This is God's instruction to Moses, to the people. He says, you yourself have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you where? To myself. I've brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. What a great invitation that God has made to the people. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Let's understand the reality that we are saved by God's grace. God's grace has been given to us, not because we were worthy of it or deserving of it, but rather because he has so freely given it to us. But that does not exempt us from the truth that this life that we live between now and heaven is going to be filled with choices. Choices that we have to make on this journey in the new normal. We have to choose on whether or not we're going to trust God and his words that he has for our life or whether we're going to try to blaze our own trail. And you see, many times when we seek to do it on our own, what do we find? We find that we get wore out. We find that we stop. We find that we miss the opportunity and we very possibly walk out on what it was that God was trying to do. In verse 10, God goes on to Moses. He says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. He says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Because whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Only the 
sound of the ram's horn, the long blast that will echo, will signal that they may approach. So here's the question. What is God trying to do here with the Israelites? What is he speaking to Moses to share with them? You see, God is preparing them for something special. God's preparing them, in fact, for something holy. God's preparing them to be in deeper relationship with himself. And he's saying, get ready for it. Prepare yourself for it. God's getting ready to enter into a covenant, an unbreakable promise with his people. And God's having his people get ready for that moment. You know, as I read this and I looked through it and I looked at my life and some of the things that have been happening around, I was reminded that as God was making the people ready and he's having them do all these preparations, it sounded a whole lot like how we prepare for a wedding. You know, you see the people are washing their clothes three times. They're cleansing themselves. They're purifying their hearts. They're doing all of these preparations to meet God in this covenant moment. And it was interesting last night, my sister Kalayla and Kyle, who were married just two weeks ago, were present. And I had the opportunity to marry them two weeks ago. Talk about a strange dynamic for me. Kalayla is my sister, and so I'm marrying her off to another guy as her older brother. I also have to be the minister in that situation. Just a lot of pieces to that onion emotionally for me on that day. But it was beautiful to be able to watch Kalayla and Kyle make preparations for this promise that they were going to make to one another. They picked out a beautiful venue. They chose the colors that they would wear, tuxes, a dress, a veil. They rehearsed dances. They prepared their heart by going to counseling and talking about the things that potentially could be a roadblock for them in their relationship with one another. Kyle took time and hung decorations, even though some of them were a little bit crooked on that day. <laughs> Kyle even cut his hair, which if you know Kyle, that's a really big deal for that kid. But they did all of these things to prepare for something special, to prepare for a moment where two things become one, to prepare for the promises. And this is no different than what we see playing out as God makes this invitation to the Israelites and invites them into a covenant with himself. You see, God's desire is for the people to make themselves ready to be in the presence of holiness. So we pick up on the morning of the third day in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. And there was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Not like fire, in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. What an entrance for God to meet with his people. In fact, look at the similarities to when the bride enters the room at a wedding, right? The music changes, all the hearts shift, all the attention goes to one place. No longer is it about the decorations. No longer is it about the groomsmen or the bridesmaids. No longer is it about anything except for the bride. In fact, we even stand in the presence as the bride enters the room. 
All the attention is on her. In the very same way, all the attention is on God, the bridegroom that has entered into our lives. And he demands the attention of his people. In fact, all of creation, as you see here, is expressing their attention to God who has entered into this moment. And after that moment, God lays out promises that he is extending and that the people will need to agree to as they enter into a covenant together. Join with me in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke these words. He said, I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice that God references immediately back to what? To his faithfulness. God references back to how he has been faithful in the past to let them know that he will be faithful in this moment and to lay out the places in which he will continue to be faithful as they trust him alone, not distracted by other things, but him alone. And God gives commands for them to grow in their vertical relationship with him. We've maybe heard these before. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All of these first four commands center around our relationship with who God is vertically in our hearts. And God is addressing to the people that their hearts have found themselves open to other things. The attention of the people has been lost. Idols, the things that would seek to try to pull us away from God, those places that we have allowed to become more important or more valuable than who God is, God is challenging and defeating those because God's desire is to sit on the throne of our hearts He is not interested in sharing it like a love seat with something else. Our heart was formed and created to worship God alone. But in our fallen and sinful life, we have allowed other things to capture our attention. And it's brought great destruction. We've seen this all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve as they've allowed themselves to be fooled, to be tricked, to turn their hearts over to things that were never intended. But God remained faithful in that. So God's leading them in these vertical commands that deepen their relationship with him. And as they deepen their relationship with who God is as the one that deserves the rightful place in their heart, it does something to their lives. It causes a horizontal expectation In fact, all of our vertical relationships with God lead us outward to our relationships with those around us. See how this plays out in the next six commands. God says, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. As we look at these commands, we need to recognize, yes, these are the first 10 that God has given, but if you look into the rest of Exodus, what you're going to see is that God would go on to give over 600 commands to his people, 
all of them removing the distractions, all of them leading them to his hearts. God's commands are given to us to protect our relationship with him and with one another. This is why he's so passionate about giving these guardrails, giving these expectations, giving these promises to us in our life. And it's important to keep in mind that these Israelites are coming out of a situation and they're coming out of a culture that is very different than what God's expectation is for his people. In fact, God, through these things, is creating a new normal, a new relationship with them. And it's through this journey in the desert that he's able to get their full attention, their full focus. People have asked, why so much suffering? Why so much craziness in our life right now as we look to the world? Why so much isolation it feels like? I imagine the Israelites asked the same question. And for us today, we know that this is a great opportunity for God to capture our attention, for all the other things to fall to the side, and for him to speak clearly. Let us not be surprised by these things, but let us know that they are things that God will use to teach us and to remind us of the things that are most important. For these Israelites coming out of Egypt, here's what they've seen. They've seen rampant sinfulness. They've watched sexual immorality take hold of the people of Egypt. They've seen the worship of many idols, not just one idol, many idols, the culture of corruption rampant, and all the other things that sinfulness would lead to. These are things that they experienced in their captivity. But now God's saying, as he's led them out of that, that I want you to live differently. I want your focus, I want your love, I want your respect, I want your heart. He says, I want you to honor those that I put in a position to raise you. I don't want you to lie, I don't want you to cheat, I don't want you to steal, I don't want you to murder for our students. I don't want you to throw shade. For those of you that don't know what that means, that means that there's gossiping that takes place, right? You've learned something today about the student culture. He says, I want to guard the relationships that you have with me. And I want you to guard the relationships that you have with one another. In our home, we've been raising Samuel now for 13 months. Is that right, hon? Is that how I'm supposed to say that? Not one year and two months, but 13 months we've been raising Samuel in our home. And we're just recently getting to that place where we're having to communicate our expectations to him. Perhaps you are in a similar place or maybe you remember that moment where he's beginning to understand that we have desires for how he is to live. Now, we're not teaching Samuel about the reality that he shouldn't murder or that he shouldn't steal, even though sometimes I always find my credit card in the diaper bag, and I don't know if that's Samuel putting it in there or if that's Kelsey putting it in there, but somebody's putting the credit card in the diaper bag every day. But what we're dealing with mostly is throwing food on the floor, right? Like in the high chair, we're trying to teach Samuel, Samuel, we would like for you to eat your food and not throw your food, right? And that's good for like three bites. And then on the fourth bite, I mean, it's on the floor. And it doesn't matter how much we try to celebrate him eating or redirect him or to continue to verbalize our expectation for him, Samuel finds himself continuing to throw food on the floor. 
And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about, man, wouldn't it just be easier if we let the boy just throw all his food on the floor? Then he would get hungry, then he would realize that he needs the food, and sometimes we do that. I'm not gonna kid you, it's a real thing that we're working on. But I'm also reminded in those moments that it is Kelsey and I's expectation that has been given to us by God through a responsibility that Samuel would learn to trust what we say. And although it may seem small about food being thrown on the floor, the reality is is that I want my son to know that I'm faithful in what I'm telling him, that it actually is better that he eats his blueberry muffin than throw it on the floor. But for him, what's more fun? Well, throwing it on the floor. Is that not how we sometimes approach our relationship with God when he gives us expectations on how we should live? that we look at this reality of what would be more enjoyable or what would allow for me to feel more free and we say, I'd much rather just do this instead of that. But if we know that God's faithful and he asks us to do something, doesn't that change everything? Don't miss this. God, our heavenly father, the one who formed us, has desires for our lives. And these desires are on display as he gives us commands in which we are to live. And in light of this, I hope you would take some time to go back through those commands, that you would look at them not as rules or a list that you need to check the box on, but that you would see the deeper relationship and the struggle, the struggle that we sometimes have trusting God in those things. And maybe it's because we've allowed another love to take a seat in our heart. Maybe it's because we've allowed a past anger or a hurt or a situation to blind us from the forgiveness that God would desire for us to have. Maybe our outward look at what everybody else has has blinded us from the reality that God has so richly blessed us and created us in his image You see, what God is doing through Exodus and still today is simply amazing. God's building a new culture, one where he is the focus, the normal for our lives. And here's what he's telling us through all of these things. He's saying, I want a real relationship with you. I don't want the fluff. I don't want just the weekend commitment. He's saying, I want all of your heart, not just a piece of it. Man, we know the pain that comes from just giving a little bit, but the joy that comes from giving God all of it. You remember the song we sang this morning, God, I leave it all at the cross. Here I lay my guilt, my shame, my past, my family. It's yours because I know that you're faithful in the God that I worship alone. If you hear nothing else today, realize that the main theme of all scripture and all of God's characteristics can be summed up this way. God wants it all. God wants all of our praise for what? Why? For his glory. For his glory. His glory that has been before all things that were created his glory that is now, and his glory that will be forever in eternity. 
And how does God do that? Well, he invites us into relationship just like we see played out through Exodus. A relationship that's built on love and promises, experience, emotion, expectations, and a singular focus of worship of him alone. We do not follow the desires of the Lord out of duty. We follow those things out of devotion because we know who he is. The commands do not save us. We cannot look at the list of commands and say that I've done all of these things and that I'm good. Rather, God's grace saves us through Jesus Christ because just like the Israelites, we too waver between grumbling and gratitude, between relationship and running away. But God continues to be faithful in all of these things. In fact, God goes to great lengths with the Israelites and he goes to great lengths with us today to see that that relationship is manifested in a physical and real way. Flip with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25 as we look at how God lays that out. Exodus 25, 8 God gives Moses the instruction to begin to build the tabernacle. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me. And here's what I'm going to do in that. I will dwell among them. He says, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. And God does that. Over the next six chapters, God lays out every color every height, every curtain, every practice, every person that's to be a part of it, and it's detail-oriented because God is proving and asking of the people to trust him in these things, and he's setting the stage for them to be able to experience him not just in a cloud of fire that descends on a mountain, but rather in their very presence. Isn't that amazingly powerful that God says, I want to dwell among them? A sinful, broken people, God says, I want to come and be with them. But again, there's still preparation that takes place for the people to enter into this. You see, inside the tabernacle, there was to be no distraction. There was to only be holiness. Everything else was pushed out. Everything else was struck down. There was no room for anything else inside of the main room of the tabernacle except for the Spirit of God. And so now as we sit here, thousands of years later, we know that God is not restricted to a physical building. He's not restricted to a box, even though sometimes we try to put them there. God has come and made his physical dwelling not just with us, but rather God has come to live in us through Jesus. God has come to live in me, not just with me. Again, God went to great lengths to send his one and only son, the perfect and pure sacrifice through Jesus Christ to die a sinner's death so that we would be able to know him. In Ephesians chapter two, it goes on to talk about this purpose. Verse 15, his purpose was to create himself one humanity, a new normal, if you will, out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through what? Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. 
And consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. The same promise that was given to the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of what? Of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21 says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirits. God's spirit living inside of us causes us to push out the other things that have become distractions. You wonder why you feel this war inside of you when you approach God in those ways. It's because he's pushing out the things that have become distractions in your life. Why? Because he wants your full attention. And and we miss that because we feel like we're doing something wrong or we feel this guilt that's inside of us. And rather, what we're feeling is God freeing us from those things that have so entangled us. The confidence that we need to face tomorrow is not found in us just doing it. It's found in trusting in his spirit that's come to live within us. The forgiveness that we need to apply to our lives and to those that maybe even sit next to us today does not come out of us just faking it to make it. It comes out of saying, God, I recognize what you've placed inside of me and I worship you alone. Not my feelings, not my emotions, not my past. I worship you and because of that, I'm gonna live in response to that. Why did God go through the troubles to give us the commands again? Why does he want our full attention? Why does he want us to live differently? Because God wants to show us the depth of his care as we embrace and share the fullness of his love. God has given us a roadmap, even when the road seems rocky, even when the next step seems uncertain. And so today, I hope that you would know God's faithfulness personally, that you would know the plans that he has for your life are good, that you would know that his love is unfailing, and that you would take a priority of your heart, that we would take an inventory of our heart, and we would say, God, what is it that's distracted me from worshiping you alone? Is it fear? Is it anxiousness? Is it a past regret? Has it become the idol worship of money or security? He is all of these things that we need. And so today, if you need to respond to who God is, know that he's made a way for you to do that. You see, Jesus came to live and to die so that we would know God personally. Why would you sit on the sidelines of that? God wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants all of your strength. And he's faithful. He's faithful for today. He's faithful for tomorrow. And he's proven his faithfulness. So why wouldn't you worship him? Why wouldn't you set him apart from everything else? The reality is, is that he doesn't want anything except for all of you. And so if you need to make a decision today to accept him as Lord and Savior through the surrender of your life and baptism, saying that I'm dead to myself, God, I want you to wash all of me away 
and I want to walk in the newness of what you've called me to, come see me. Let's go together. We've got extra clothes if you need them. Surrender to what Jesus has done. If you sit here today and you've already done that, recognize that the idols of our life and the distractions that surround us, they want a place in your heart. Let God push those out as you surrender to him as king and the Lord of your life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. None other is worthy of our praise. But so many things have captured our attention. God, I pray that you would remind us in this moment of who you are, just as you've done through your word. God, if there's anything in us that keeps us from trusting you right now, I pray that we would surrender that to you. Because God, you can take it, you can take it all. God, our worship, our worship is to you alone. And we know that in this life, you will continue to lead us. And so God, grant us your wisdom. God, grant us your direction. We want to listen and trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.